I read an article this week about uh, how the kingdom of God is advancing uh, in a place that we don't think of a whole lot. It's actually one of the most remote and violent places on the face of the earth. Uh, and this is the so-called red zone in the nation of Colombia. Actually, it's plural. There are lots of red zones. But the, these, these are places in Colombia, most of the, uh, of, of the country and most of the countryside especially is controlled by communist guerrillas and then also some right-wing paramilitary groups. And uh, they have different agendas, but these groups mostly finance their activities in the same way, almost exclusively through drug trafficking. And the families that are unfortunate enough to live in this area of Colombia have almost no choice but to participate in the form of agriculture that makes up most of the local economy, which is growing and processing the, the coca plant for the drug trade. Uh, their children, uh, seeing little hope for any kind of life outside of this existence, are often drawn into the drug cartels themselves by the promise of getting rich or, or, or sometimes even forced into these groups against their will. The article that I read followed a man whose name was Rollo, uh, Rollo was a former guerrilla himself. Uh, he now has come to Christ, and he smuggles Bibles to the pastors and to uh, the struggling Christians in these villages while he tries to stay under the radar of the drug traffickers who control the place. And Rollo has been threatened. He has been beaten. He has even been tortured. But he continues to, to find great joy and encouragement from making these dangerous trips into the backcountry there by motorcycle and sometimes by boat. Uh, into these remote places, places where Christian children are often kidnapped, where pastors are shot to death, and where church buildings are often chained shut by these guerrillas who terrorize the villages. And when I read about these stories, one of the questions I ask, and maybe you too, you asked it too, is just why? Why, why target the Christians? Why target the Christians. I mean, it makes sense that these, these narco-terrorists who run much of Colombia would have issues with the government, that they would have issues with the, you know, political people or have issues with the military, but, but why the church? Why, why kill pastors? Why torture people that bring Bibles into the, the area? Why, why put chains on the doors of these little village churches? What are they hoping to accomplish? Or maybe we should ask another question. Maybe we should ask what are they afraid of? What are they afraid of? Go ahead and turn with me, if you will, to the book of Matthew. We're back to Matthew today and back to chapter 13. So Matthew chapter 13, we're just going to read three pretty short verses here. Jesus tells many parables in Matthew chapter 13. In fact, Matthew 13 is probably the most parable-intensive uh, chapter in the whole Bible. But these parables all pretty much have something in common. Uh, pretty much all of them are about the growth of God's kingdom. The growth of God's kingdom. If the kingdom of God, as we've said, is God ruling over his people in his place, then what does the process of growth look like for God's kingdom? Both big growth all over the world and then little growth in our lives and in our little communities. And if, if we know what the growth of God's kingdom looks like, how it advances, then maybe it has some implications for us. As we Christians are citizens of this kingdom, and we are supposed to be seeking his kingdom first, Jesus says, and presumably we're supposed to be playing some part in seeing the kingdom 
of God grow and expand. So let me go ahead and, and, and read you some, some of the more famous verses here, starting in verse 31, actually. Verse 31, and I'll we'll just read through to verse 33. Verse 31, it says, Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Okay, these are some pretty famous sayings of Jesus, uh, especially that first one. You've all heard of the mustard seed probably. And they're not that hard to understand. I mean, intellectually, it's pretty obvious what's going on here. The emphasis on this mustard seed parable is not so much on the large size of the tree that grows from it, although that's important too. It's more on the size of this tiny little insignificant-looking seed from which this large tree springs. And it's pretty obvious, I think, here that Jesus is saying that as far as the growth of the kingdom of God is concerned, that the kingdom of God can grow from a very small and seemingly insignificant beginning into something that is very solid and very substantial. As for the leaven, or the yeast, as we usually call it today, we notice also we notice dramatic growth there. Um, by the way, yeast kind of trips people up sometimes because in, in most places in the Bible, yeast is used as a symbol of sin or evil. That's not the case here. Jesus is just talking about how yeast works, and he uses it here to symbolize something good. But he, we notice the dramatic growth because it only takes a small amount of yeast to leaven a, a large batch of dough. In this case, three measures of dough is, is about 50 pounds worth of dough, enough to feed about 100 people. But the emphasis here is even more on the fact that the growth is invisible. It's invisible. Yeast does its work at the microscopic level, uh, we know how it works chemically today. They didn't really know back then, of course. But we, we, the thing is, we can't see it working. We can only observe the results. And yet somehow that little bit of yeast is powerful enough to spread through the entire batch of dough as it's worked around. Now these things may be easy to understand in that sense, but, but the question becomes, what is the application to our lives? There are many ways to apply uh, these parables, um, but one in particular really jumps out at me, and, and that's what I want to talk to you about today. And I want to start to illustrate it by showing you a clip from a movie. Um, I almost never do this, um, but, and I haven't done it in a long time, since there are very few movies today that everyone is familiar with, so it's hard to do this. And so we actually let the license expire, so we're not even supposed to show you movie clips anymore. However, this one is actually a very short promotional clip that came out before the actual movie. It was just posted on the Internet as an advertisement, so it's, we're not violating copyright here. But the scene I'm about to show you is from The Hunger Games, um, which is, a lot of you have probably seen The Hunger Games. If you haven't, you've probably at least heard something about it. If you're not familiar with this trilogy, it's a story of a very dark future in which America is run by a corrupt, oppressive, evil regime that is centered in the nation's capital, and it exploits and impoverishes the people of the 12 surrounding districts to support its lavish lifestyle. And the capital reinforces its dominance over the people every single year by taking 24 teenagers, two from each of the 12 districts, and forcing them to fight to the death on national television so that only the winner gets to survive. That's kind of the plot of the thing. And in the scene you're going to see, the nation's president, played by Donald Sutherland, is talking with the man whose task it is to design this arena where the teens are going to fight one another to the death, and they're having a conversation about 
why they do this and what happens. So go ahead and just watch this, this short clip here. Why do you think we have a winner? What do you mean? I mean, why do we have a winner? Hope. 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 It is the only thing stronger than fear. A little hope is effective. A lot of hope is dangerous. A spark is fine, as long as it's contained. So, Contain it. <laughs> simple idea, right? Very simple idea. Why do drug traffickers in Colombia care about something so seemingly irrelevant to their concerns as a little village church? Why, why are the powers that be throughout this world so often afraid of the growth of Christianity? I would suggest to you that just as in the Hunger Games here, it has something to do with that word hope. Hope. The Christian gospel introduces into the lives of downtrodden and oppressed people a hope that might just lead some of them to take the risk and defy the drug cartels and look for another way to live. And this kind of hope, whether it's Colombia or in America or anywhere else, if it's not contained, it can become dangerous. And so the oppressor, at all costs, needs to find a way to squash this hope or at least contain it. And when Jesus here starts talking about things like mustard seeds and yeast, he is creating, he's speaking in a very subversive way here, and, and he's creating a very uh, dangerous amount of hope in his followers. See, Jesus is speaking here to a group of people who are really being doubly oppressed, really doubly enslaved. And, and here's why. First of all, they're being enslaved by the Roman Empire, who has occupied their land and is confiscating a lot of their resources and threatening their, to kill them if they get out of hand. Meanwhile, on the other side of the equation, they're being enslaved by a twisted form of religion that is telling them that they have to earn their salvation by keeping a law that is impossible for anyone to obey. And when this miracle-working man from Galilee comes into town and starts talking about another option, another alternative, another kingdom, and that this kingdom can actually turn into something big and powerful, even if it starts from something really small, and that this kingdom can actually be growing by God's power, even if you don't see it happening, they can maybe start to think that, you know what, even though their situation might seem pretty hopeless at present or on the surface, maybe it won't be like that forever. Maybe there's more going on here that meets the eye. Maybe God is at work after all even though we don't see it happening, or even though it's really small. And hope like that can become contagious, and it can become dangerous. And in fact, the article I read about the struggling Christians in Colombia ended like this. It said, children in remote towns and villages who see little hope of a future beyond the subsistence farming of their parents are lured to armed groups by promises of financial gain if they aren't forced to join as expendable foot soldiers. The hope of belonging to an eternal kingdom, as promised in God's word, is the only solution for Colombia's future generations. You see, the good news of Jesus talks to us about eternal life, but that's not just living forever. It's living forever in a kingdom, in a community, where injustice and oppression are things of the past, 
where nobody ever threatens your life or steals from you or tries to force you to disobey God, where poverty has been replaced by abundance for everyone, where disease and death have been completely done away with, where you never have to have your heart broken again by tragic news or the betrayal of a friend or by the hurtful or selfish behavior of a loved one. None of that stuff ever happens anymore. And if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, then there is nothing that can ever, ever take that hope away from you because these things will come to pass. As Paul reminds us in Romans 5, hope does not disappoint. It doesn't come up empty. The kingdom is coming. Not just in its halfway intermediate form like we see it today, but in its totality. The kingdoms of this world will someday become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ, as it says in Revelation. God's fair and righteous and gracious rule is going to be active everywhere in creation forevermore. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, all pain will be in the past, and we will have eternal pleasures, Psalm 16 tells us, at God's right hand. And here's the weird thing. You might think that when people have this hope, it would make them less dangerous to the status quo, because after all, I mean, religion is supposed to be the opiate of the masses, right? So, so if we know that everything will be okay in the afterlife, then we might think, why even bother about this life? Why care about it? Why bother serving God or taking risks or trying to seek His kingdom now? Maybe we should just sort of hang out and wait. But as it turns out, this isn't the way that Christian hope works. Instead, what happens is that the people who have this hope of heaven are actually more active and more courageous on earth because they no longer have to be ruled by fear. And people who are no longer afraid can be very dangerous. And when those people start not just living by this hope, but sharing it with others, the kingdom of God can grow even from the smallest and most unpromising beginnings into a mustard tree where the birds of the air can find refuge in its branches. It is hard to think of a more hopeless place in the United States where young people are trapped in a life of futility and have been for a long time than they are in inner-city Chicago. But in the book, um, I shared with you some thoughts from the book Kingdom Conspiracy a couple of months ago. Uh, in that book, it tells about how 30 years ago, a man named Wayne Gordon graduated from Wheaton College near Chicago, and in a move that a lot of people thought was just plain crazy, he started teaching at Farragut High School, which is right in the middle of one of the most devastated communities in Chicago. Well, Wayne also began coaching football at the school, and eventually he had enough of an impact on just a small group of young men to begin a modest Bible study. Well, the Bible study grew, and it actually became a church. And that led to Wayne becoming a pastor. And the church was small, but the people really loved each other. And when Wayne's house was burglarized about a dozen times during his first few years as pastor, the church folks kept giving and giving sacrificially to supply his home and to keep him going. The love of these people for one another was not only noticed in the community there, but it began to spill out into the community. The church started by, by starting a laundromat. Then it started an, addic an addiction treatment center. Then it built a gymnasium for the community and housing for those in need. Then came a hip-hop ministry and a pizza joint. But at the center of all of these messy but community-transforming activities is a church. Just a simple church, a worshiping, praying, loving, Bible-preaching church with a pastor that everybody calls coach. 
How did this happen? How does this kind of thing happen? How does a puny little mustard seed-sized Bible study for a bunch of high school football players turn into that? Can we trace it out? I don't think so. But we know this, that hope, the hope of the gospel took root in that formerly hopeless place. And once that happened, Jesus, through his imperfect but obedient people, worked all the yeast through the dough of that community, and God began to rule more and more in the hearts of more and more people, and a place was transformed into a new kingdom outpost that was demonstrating the love of God to a hostile world. That's kingdom growth. That's what it looks like. God's people, as he rolls over them, in what more and more becomes his place. But let's face it. We don't live there, do we? That kind of environment is still pretty remote from all of our experiences, right? I mean, we don't live in inner-city Chicago. We don't live in, in drug-infested Colombian red zones. Most of us, probably all of us here, are in a lot better shape than that. We have enough to eat. Our, our homes are relatively safe and comfortable. Our kids are not in constant danger of being drawn into gangs. Most of them, in fact, are probably looking forward to college or to some steady job or to some other positive-sounding thing. We have, we have good medical care. We have home insurance and car insurance, maybe a little 401k or some other retirement money. And so we're pretty secure compared to these other places. And we, you know, most of the time when we talk about hope, it resonates more, it seems, with the people who need it more, right? The, the down-and-outers, the poor and powerless, and if you think about the people that responded to Jesus when he first came preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that group of people was very much overrepresented, weren't they? The poor and the powerless and the down and outers, that was pretty much what made up his followers for the most part. Because why? Because they had almost no stake in the kingdoms of this world. They could care less about them. And having almost no stake in the kingdoms of the world, they were, as Luke describes it, looking for the kingdom of God. They were looking for another kingdom, something else. But then we have to ask the question, what about those of us who are more affluent and maybe have some more power and a little bit more uh, better standing and maybe we're more successfully plugged into the systems of this world and so we have a little more invested in the worldly kingdom? Do we still need hope? Maybe even the same hope that they need in Colombia and in Chicago. Well, are there fears that still enslave us? Are there threats over which we have no control? Are there heartbreaks and disappointments and dangers that our money and our technology and our doctors cannot fix for us? You know there are. It doesn't matter how rich or how good-looking or how persuasive or intelligent you are, you cannot control other people you cannot make them do things you don't want them to do, and you can't make you treat them a certain way, and you can't control what they think of you. It doesn't matter how much you love your kids and your other family members and friends, you can't force them not to make stupid or painful decisions that hurt them and other people. It doesn't matter how much insurance you have or how much is in your 401k when that doctor starts to shake his head at you in the exam room or when the drunk driver in the other lane crosses the center line. If we're going to find true peace, we're going to have to find a hope that goes beyond the hope that we can find in our worldly resources. 
And if we're ever going to step out of our comfort zones and really make a difference for God's kingdom, if we're going to do some hard or scary things, if we're going to love others in any kind of a costly way, if we're going to ever speak up when it might be unpopular, or if we're ever going to make decisions that have the possibility of lowering our comfort and security level, we're going to have to be freed from the fear of these things that we can't control. We need a hope, in short, that comes from a person who is more powerful than our diseases. We need a healing that goes deeper than the damage of the shame and rejection that we're afraid of, and a promise that overcomes all the loss and disappointment that we might experience, even when someone we love dies, or even when we die. We need an eternal hope. We need a kingdom hope. And only the gospel can give us that. Because in the gospel, in the good news, that good news of the kingdom, we learn that God sent the King Himself to come and save us, that Jesus entered this world in order to bear our sin, in order to experience ultimate loss, ultimate shame, ultimate rejection, and even give His life so that death would no longer have a hold on us. Because sin is how death grips us. So when the sin is gone, we just slip through death's fingers. And it can't hang on to us anymore. Have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and your King? He is the only one who offers you that hope. He is the only one who has defeated death. And you know what else? He's the only one who is the God of the mustard seed. What I mean by that is most of us have things that we are hoping for, maybe things that we're praying for, that don't seem very likely to happen, right? Maybe it's a relationship that seems like it is in shambles and there's no chance of it ever healing. Maybe it's a family member who has traveled so far from God that you can't even see a way back. You have trouble even picturing what it would look like for this person to, to turn around. Humanly speaking here, the chances you'd say are probably like a million to one or something like that. And so the obstacles to your prayer being answered are so big and your hope is so small, why even bother continuing to pray, to hope, to dream when all it does is bring you pain anyway? Here's why. Because Jesus tells us that kingdom growth and here I'm talking about the ground-level, everyday, personal kind of kingdom growth, not the big kind of church going to take over the world kind of kingdom growth. I'm talking about little things that happen in our lives. Because you know what? The story of the church expanding all over the world is nothing more than just a million little stories, right? I'm talking about kingdom growth that consists of people coming to know Jesus, people coming back to Jesus, People finding healing and wholeness in Jesus. People turning the broken parts of their lives over to Jesus. That kind of growth often starts from an impossibly small beginning. One prayer. One word. One act of kindness. One seemingly random event. And if that's all you have to go on, then that's okay. You know what else? Oftentimes that growth also can't be seen. It's happening behind the scenes. It's, 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 it's happening inside someone's heart. It's happening in some place you don't have visibility into. But it's still happening. 
Several times in my ministry, I have been trying to walk with a family through preparations for the funeral of a loved one. And as they go through their loved one's belongings, the family, this has happened on multiple occasions, has discovered something surprising. It might be a prayer journal, it might be a list of favorite hymns, it might be a, that the Bible has certain passages marked up with little notes in certain places. Other times they will hear during that week from, from a testimony from someone they don't even know about how their loved one impacted this other person's life for Jesus. And they'll realize that even though they didn't see it, God was at work. That he was answering their prayers in ways they didn't know about and never even suspected. I guess what I'm telling you here is don't give up. Don't give up. And then one last thing, I'm just going to close with this. That if you can share your hope in Christ with just one person, whether it's a testimony of how God helped you or, 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 or some way that God brought you through a season where you thought he had abandoned you or maybe you've seen him work in somebody else's life or in some family member's life that you've prayed for or whatever it might be. If you can just share your hope with one other person. Best of all, if you can share the hope of the gospel itself with someone, that Jesus died and rose again to give this person hope for an eternal life and an everlasting kingdom, that, that your hope really can be contagious. God can use it somewhere along the process of this mustard seed growth. I think a lot can be done in this world if, if Christians start trafficking in hope. Amen. Here's something to keep in mind, though. As we look at the trajectory of human history as the Bible presents it, it's not a very triumphant story. That it, it is eventually, but not until Jesus shows up in person. Okay, So the, the coming of the kingdom in its final form is not this culmination of this great thing where the church has become so successful that we just kind of take over the world for Jesus. That's not how it's pictured. Instead, what we get in Matthew 24 and 25 and other places is a picture of things actually getting worse and worse. But at the same time, this gospel of the kingdom is being declared throughout the world as a testimony to all nations and people from every single people group on the face of the earth are finding hope in Christ. These two things are happening simultaneously. So what I'm saying is this, as you get out there and, and you start trying to spread the hope of Jesus to others, don't expect the world to cooperate, but expect God to move. Keep sharing the hope that you found. And never give up believing in the God who, after all, has already reached out to save you. Because he's the God of the mustard seed. Let's pray for ourselves and our church and our world. Lord, we, we need this hope. We're, we're just surrounded by voices of, of cynicism and hopelessness and sometimes just downright irrelevance and noise for most of our lives, and we forget about the hope of the gospel. We forget about how powerful you are and, and how, uh, Lord, it, even when it doesn't look good sometimes, there are great things happening beneath the surface. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill us with that hope and that you'd help us as, as individuals to trust in you, to trust in in a God who, who saved us in a way that nobody expected, 
to trust in the Jesus who, who died for us to make all these promises and the parables a reality? The one who loves us and calls us by name? The one who has pulled us up from just an impossible situation and delivered us from an impossible prison and paid off an impossible debt so that we could be free? Lord, I, I think about the impossible things that many of us are, are praying for, hoping for, believing for, and how so often it's easy just to kind of just to fold things up and, and say, you know what, forget it. Lord, but I pray that you would help us not to do that, but to keep on praying and to keep on hoping because of who you are and because of what you've promised and because you've told us it's going to look this way. Lord, I pray for us as a body that you would help us to speak into each other's lives and to share stories of our hope and the hope that we've heard around us, that, that the hope might, might truly begin to, to, to turn sparks into a flame around here. And the First Alliance would be a place where, where people could come here and find hope, but beyond that, that they would see little stories of hope being lived out in all the places where we go from day to day over the course of the week. Lord, as a church, we need your help. We need your guidance. We need your direction. We need to hear from you about where we go corporately in the future. Lord, please show us the way. We need another staff member who will help us in our discipleship and worship ministries so that we can continue to grow this place. And Lord, this is not something that we do. This is something that you do and we just take part in by your power. And so we ask you to, to answer these prayers and to bring us what we need. But Lord, we know that, that all of the planning and all of the, the, the machinations that we go through as a church are useless if your Holy Spirit is not empowering us. And so we pray, Lord, for the power of the Holy Spirit, because without that, we can accomplish nothing. Lord, give us that hope so that it will spread. It's a supernatural hope, Lord. We know you want to give it to us, and so we're confident in praying for it. Help us not to give up. In Jesus' name, amen.